0: Off the Page has finished her first season and is on a short summer break with season two set for September. Please enjoy this selection of an encore presentation from our sister podcast, Today in BC. We have to remember that we have all suffered, some people way more than others, but we've all been through this together and we've seen some of the impacts it can have. So the resilience and our ability to get through this and to recover from this really does depend on us connecting with each other. And that's the message that I think we need to think about. How do we make up for some of that? How do we connect with those people that we've lost touch with? How do we remember that this was a global storm and we were all in it, but we weren't all in the same boat? And we need to be compassionate and recognize that in each other. That's what's gonna help us build back, hopefully in a way that is more just and supportive of each other.
1: I'm Peter McCulley. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry, the Provincial Health Officer for British Columbia. Dr. Henry talks about her story, COVID, and what's next for BC, when Today in BC continues.
0: Buying a home is an important milestone. Find the right realtor and the right listings for your needs at today's homebc.com. powered by Black Press Media. With easy-to-use search filters and direct links to realtors and their websites, you'll get all the information you need to find your perfect home. Search hundreds of local listings and get access to the top real estate professionals to help you find your perfect property. Get started now at todayshomebc.com.
1: Thanks for joining us on this edition of Today in BC, Dr. Henry.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You grew up in the Maritimes, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, graduated from Dalhousie Medical School in Nova Scotia. Did your residency in Toronto and San Diego, which sounds pretty nice, did you get to enjoy any of your time in California or is it like the medical shows on TV where everyone works around the clock and doesn't get to the beach.
0: There was a lot of work to be done, that's for sure. And yes, it was in San Diego for a few years and did a specialty in what we call preventive medicine down there and a master's in public health. So it was a pretty busy time, but we were there with my now ex-husband's job at the time, and we lived very close to the beach, so that was nice.
1: Your father was in the Army, and so you got to travel a bit, being posted in St. John's, Newfoundland, one of my favorite spots and the Netherlands, which must have been interesting. And I'm also thinking your army dad must have been a bit surprised when you joined the Navy.
0: <laughs> yes, that's for sure. We had a peripatetic childhood where we did move a lot. We always had a home base, though, back in Prince Edward Island and in Nova Scotia, where my mother grew up. So that very much is part of who I am. I really identify with being part of Islanders and that's home with a capital H. But I absolutely loved living in St. John's and still have friends from there that I visit regularly. My my father was, as you said, an Armored Corps officer, so yes, he was a little miffed when I joined the Navy. It was something that attracted me, but as a physician, which I was when I was in the military, I got to work in all different services. So I got to do some exciting things like fly in F-18s and do diving medicine and also was posted to a ship for quite a few years.
1: Was that when you were in Esquimalt?
0: Yes, as a medical officer in Esquimalt, I was the fleet medical officer at one point and spent quite a bit of time in a number of ships here on the coast.
1: So how long did you serve and what ports of call did you see?
0: Ah, I served for just under 10 years, so nine years and eight months, and got to do a lot of really exciting things. So as I mentioned, I was a flight surgeon, so I got to fly in all kinds of things, F-18s and helicopters. Also, we did a number of what they call cruises in the Navy, and we were in the Far East and do the regular trip to San Diego and Hawaii doing exercises with our partners. It was a really interesting time. It was a challenging time, though, I must say, particularly being one of the very few women sometimes, sometimes the only woman on board a ship. It was a time of transition. And I will say that the military is still
1: going through a time of transition. Are you a member of the Reserve?
0: I'm not. No. When I left the military, it was time for me to move on.
1: What training would you have received in the armed forces that would have served you well in your current role as provincial health officer?
0: I think there was a lot of things that you go through when you spend time in the military with the training, whether it's the basic training and then the medical training, and then the work that we do. And I think about it in terms of leadership in particular, understanding how to organize, how to make decisions in a crisis, having experience and having to do that. There's always things that are happening where you have to respond and you have an approach that looks at the situation, we call it command and control. We, we try not to be that command and control. And if I think about public health, the best decisions we make are ones that are made collaboratively over time, where you have an iterative approach and you, you get the best information. But sometimes when you're in a crisis, you need to be able to make decisions with imperfect information. And that's about leadership and that's about skills that I started to learn quite a bit of when I was in the military. I think some of the other things that I learned were the the population health approach, even though it was mostly young, healthy, mostly men at that time. When you go to sea with a ship, to be able to look at it, how do we protect the health of everybody on, on board that ship? And what are the things that make a difference? So making sure that everybody's vaccinated. I was part of the time when we banned smoking within the ship which was not very popular at the time, but really important because it impacted everybody. And it was at the time when no smoking laws were being passed across the country. And I remember being part of the decision making for that and the other senior members of the military. We also had a number of outbreaks on board ship when we took in one time contaminated water when we were off in the South Pacific. So, That was exciting stuff, learning how to detect what's causing the disease and being able to figure out what exactly it was. Those are the types of epidemiologic skills that I started to get really excited about when I was in the Navy.
1: So you've been involved with planning and surveillance of response to mass gatherings in Canada and internationally with the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. That's not something I'm sure a lot of us would think about. What's involved with something like that?
0: I really started getting involved with mass gatherings, we call them. So that's any sort of event that strains the local system to capacity. And and it can be anything from sports events to religious events, the Olympics. We have things like the Hajj in Saudi Arabia that happens every year. So these were things that I got really interested in when I was working in the city of Toronto and started being part of planning for World Youth Day. You may remember it was in 2002, just after 2001 and all of the events of 9-11. We realized that we needed to work together with the city, with the emergency services, so police and fire and the Toronto Emergency Medical Services and public health. Our role was to monitor the people who are participating, the spectators and the local population. Because if people are coming from all over the world, like the Olympics, they can bring things with them that we may not see here normally. And we need to be able to to detect them quickly and be able to manage it if something happens. And also, we need to protect people from things that can happen here, whether it's heat-related illness, that was something that happened in things like World Youth Day, or cold-related illnesses. So we had plans in place to evacuate people if we had major snowstorms or if it got too cold at a venue. So these are all really interesting things. I think of them really as planned emergencies, and you put in place structures so that you can monitor and see if people are healthy. Really, the goal is to try and protect all the different people who are involved in this event and the community to make sure that it can happen successfully.
1: Dr. Henry, you also worked in Toronto and were the operational head on the response to the SARS outbreak and Ebola overseas in Uganda as well. Did those experiences make you uneasy when word started to come out of China about the flu that was spreading there?
0: Absolutely. I was one of the medical officers of health at the City of Toronto, working with Toronto Public Health when SARS happened in 2003. I think back a lot to late 2019, early 2020, and what we were hearing was so similar to what we were hearing in late 2002. It was, oh, there's an unusual illness. It's causing respiratory infection, pneumonias. People are being in hospital the Chinese government saying, no, it's okay. We know what it is. It's just small. It's contained. It's not anything to worry about, nothing to see here. So it was very concerning. And a number of my colleagues across the country in public health, and we're such a small community, we were involved at the time. And I remember saying, oh, my post SARS stress is coming up. Do we need to worry about this? We were hearing online of different groups. One of the things I will say is since 2003, around the globe, there's connections and communities that monitor the lab results for influenza and other respiratory illnesses. So there's quite a connection of scientists who are involved in particularly influenza because it happens every year and we need to know what strains are happening. And they were all starting to hear these rumors from China to And we worried that it was a new strain of influenza that could be very severe. As we know, it turned out to be a coronavirus.
1: Do you remember where you were and the circumstances when you knew that you were dealing with something more than just the regular flu?
0: I think it evolved over time from just after Christmas. I remember getting back, I think it was around the 29th of December, and talking with one of my colleagues at the BC Centre for Disease Control, Dr. Skowronski, about this is really worrisome. This is not what we would expect to see. And we hear in the rumor mill that it's spreading. So that was something that really made me very concerned. And one of the first things I did was alert our minister and the other leaders in the health system here. We still didn't have any proof, of course, but we also had a number of forums across the country where we get together. So we were all watching And we were watching with our colleagues globally, through the WHO as well. The weekend, though, where I was most concerned, we had a couple of people who had returned from travel, and their lab tests had gone into our BCCDC lab, and one of them was positive for influenza, and the other came up negative for influenza. And we were very concerned that there was this new strain of coronavirus. And as it turned out, it it was. It was very early on in late January when our worst fears were confirmed.
1: As COVID started to become more public and the daily briefings were required and you were in the public eye every day for such a long time, you needed to make the message simple and easy to understand, especially when there was so much complex detail involved. And in now what has become a familiar calm tone which I'm sure is recognized far and wide. If you pick up the phone, do folks know who's talking right away?
0: (laughs) I'll have to laugh at that because I have three sisters and we all sound a lot alike. And my mother used to always get us mixed up on the phone. So yes, other people have recognized my voice
1: now too. (laughs) For many of us who work hard to keep things going in their respective businesses and industries during the pandemic, It's likely the hardest they've ever worked, given everything happening around them. Do you have any sense of the long-term effects of that and being disconnected from each other as we were? Just thinking back as well about the communications and talking to people about what
0: was happening. I know from my previous experiences, like we talked about with SARS, with Ebola, when people don't know what's going on and there's a lot of uncertainty, that can create a lot of fear and anxiety for people. Part of my job from the very beginning was to put that in a context, to tell people what we know and what we didn't know, what we needed them to do. And I think really important is to give people a sense of what might happen, but also give people the ability to do what we're asking them to do. And if we ask you to stay home when you're sick, making sure we have the ability to support you in doing that. Those are really important things. And yeah, as we learned, this disconnection, was really hard on people. I laugh about myself. I'm very much an introvert and staying home by myself wouldn't have been such a bad thing if I didn't have this job. But I think even for people like me, that prolonged sense of, of being away from others is very hard on us. We need to be with each other. That's part of our nature. And I. I work a lot primarily for young people. One of my nephews who was in high school and missed his graduation and first year university was all online and job prospects weren't there for those entry-level jobs that a lot of young people do, whether it's in restaurants or in the tourism business. I think they have been really differentially impacted. But we've also learned that we can connect in meaningful ways with people, even virtually through times of crises. As this went on, though, that becomes harder. We do really need those personal interactions, especially those young people at that age when you're developing relationships, when you're learning about different ways of being and thinking with people who come from different backgrounds. Those are the things that I believe we need to pay attention to now. How do we support young people who were so isolated during those important years of their life when those types of connections need to be made and give them those opportunities to make up for it but i also think we have learned that we are strong and resilient and we're strong and resilient when we support each other so my resilience my ability to bounce back from a hard thing especially when it goes on this long partly comes from my own experiences but it also comes from my community and whether that's your close family, whether that's people that, those social connections that you have, we have a common bond now. And where I come from, we have this saying this is common suffering builds strong bonds. It's mostly about winters and PEI, but it's true. We have to remember that we have all suffered. Some people way more than others, but we've all been through this together and we've seen some of the impacts it can have. So the resilience and our ability to get through this and to recover from this really does depend on us connecting with each other now. And that's the message that I think we need to think about. How do we make up for some of that? How do we connect with those people that we've lost touch with? How do we remember that this was a global storm and we were all in it, but we weren't all in the same boat? And we need to be compassionate and recognize that in each other. That's what's going to help us build back, hopefully in a way that is more just and supportive
1: of each other. When Today in BC continues, Dr. Bonnie Henry talks about lessons learned. Why spend hours searching dealerships, comparing makes and models? Find the best of BC's inventory in one place, todaysdrive.com. You'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. Get in the driver's seat Don't miss out on the many options we have available for you. Powered by Black Press Media, todaysdrive.com connects you with exclusive new and used car deals. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. The spread of COVID is not over as we speak, and some of the long-term effects on the health of those who have had COVID is really just coming to light now. What do you see for the immediate future, and how do you think we'll view all of this five years from now?
0: In the immediate future, right now, we have a very high level of vaccination across Canada and this province, and that has made a tremendous difference. The virus keeps changing, and that's one of the challenges that we've had to deal with. As this virus is changing, and we've been able to watch that in real time with things like whole genome sequencing, the actions that we take to try and address it have also had to change. And we see that most dramatically with Omicron and all of those things that we were doing that really made a difference to staying apart and wearing masks and contact tracing. It's just not possible when a virus is spreading that rapidly. But the good news was we had such a high level of vaccination that it wasn't causing as much hospitalization and deaths especially in vulnerable people, as we had seen before. So really what we need to think about now is we're at a place where we have a high level of immunity, primarily from vaccination. We all know people right now that have recently had COVID, mostly with Omicron. And it's mostly mild, thankfully, because people have had the vaccination, so their immune system's ready to fight it off. And now with this level of immunity, both from vaccination and from recent infection, We are seeing that hospitalizations are going down and we're going to have, I believe, a little bit of a reprieve. But we know this virus isn't finished with us yet. And until we're in a good place around the globe, there's still possibilities that it's going to come back with a vengeance. It's likely to come back. We're seeing that there's patterns to the transmission. So it's likely to come back in the fall. And part of what I'm doing right now and my team's doing is looking at Well, what does that mean? What are the possible scenarios we could be facing with COVID? We know influenza is going to be coming back this year because we're all traveling now and we bring these things with us when we move around the globe. So we're going to see influenza, we're going to see COVID, we're going to see other viruses that cause respiratory illness like RSV and sometimes those can be serious as well. So we have to be prepared. That may mean that we'll need to keep up to date with our vaccinations, which may mean everybody might need another booster in the fall. It may mean that only certain people will. But we'll also have to remember those things that protect those most vulnerable. So things like if we're in an indoor space for too long with too many people wearing masks might become important again if we get more of these viruses circulating. We know that the things that we did, wearing masks and washing hands and really importantly, staying away from others when you're sick, those do make a difference. So we'll have to remind people about that. I am hopeful that we're not going to need to ever go back to some of the more extreme measures that we needed to do, restrictions on travel or sizes of groups coming together. And really, that's because we are not a naive population to this virus the way we were last year and the year before. We have that level of immunity that protects people, but we are going to have to take special measures to protect people who don't respond as well to vaccines and may be at highest risk.
1: This seems like a good point in the conversation to ask you if you had one message for the people of BC, what would it be?
0: It would be that we have seen that when we work together to get through these times, that makes it easiest for all of us, that we hold each other up. And we've done that in BC in so many ways, supporting each other. And the thing that I think is so important is the is kindness. And kindness is about recognizing that we are in this storm together and having compassion for other people. Those are the things that get us through these tough times. And we've been through a lot in BC, not just COVID. But if we think through the last year, we had that tragic heat dome We've had atmospheric rivers, we've had wildfire seasons and smoke that have caused health impacts and evacuations, and we've had things like the tragedy of the discovering of unmarked graves of children who never returned home from residential schools. That's a lot for us to take, and I believe we need to remember that and respond to each other and remember that we have more that connects us than separates us. We need to take those things that bring us together
1: and to do it with kindness. Looking back on the last couple of years, two, three years, would you do anything differently? I think it's really hard to look
0: back and say, is there one thing that I would do differently? Obviously, I'm the face and the voice of a very strong team of public health and healthcare professionals and leaders across this province. I really take that to heart. And we've always tried to make the best decisions possible with imperfect information. And I talked a little bit about learning about making decisions in a crisis when I was in the military, but it is important to make a decision and to recognize that not making a decision can have sometimes traumatic impacts as well and tragic impacts. So we try to make the best decisions possible with changing information and with the best information, with imperfect information. always inevitable that you're going to do too much or not enough. My job is to, along with others, is to weigh what are the impacts if you do too much versus the impacts if you do not enough on which populations are going to be affected are more people going to die if we do this or that? I've said often that data and the science never tells you what to do, that it has to be put in the context of values and preferences and judgments. And that was part of... The role that I played was talking through those things with our elected leaders. That's what we elect them for, to help us understand if we're going to affect this industry, what are the things government can do to support that industry? I would talk to the industry about, this is the issue we have, what's the best way to try and manage it? So do we close restaurants entirely? Is that better for you? Or do we have takeaway? Or do we limit the numbers of people? And then government can say, if we do this, we can support you with this type of a bailout program or whatever. So there's a lot of complexity to these decisions that we made and none of them were made lightly. And all of them were made with that framework of trying to balance risks and benefits and see who would suffer more, but also the spirit of reciprocity, being able to support people who were more affected by the decisions we made, which is a long answer. But the reality is we tried to make the best decisions possible with the best information that we had. And I think that has for the most part, led us down a path of least harms as best we can over the last two and a half
1: years. Dr. Henry, do you ever read comments online? <laughs>
0: yeah, n- not anymore. <laughs> I may have at one point in my life. I worry quite a lot that the comments online and some of the social media platforms, the algorithms really build in hate or they get people into an echo chamber of negativity Somebody said to me once, the algorithms don't have empathy. And it really concerns me, the negativity that we can see on these comments and people feed off each other on the negative parts of it. And I've seen that as well in some of the social media. And it becomes very real because some people don't think of it as just an online venting. They believe it To be real and that it gives them permission to do some of the things that I've experienced, which is people coming to my house, people threatening me, people calling into the office or sending things. And that is very distressing. And it means that I've been in fear of my life. Because of some of these things that have happened online, I'm not the only one, clearly, and I know many elected officials have very similar things, but there's very much a tone of hate and misogyny. The level of vitriol that I have felt has surprised me in ways that I could never have imagined And that has its impacts. It has impacts on my family, the people I work with, and certainly on me as well. So I think we need as a society to address some of these issues and to build in empathy into these platforms and not let people think that these are okay in any way.
1: Be kind, be calm, be safe. It's on fridge magnets, it's on t-shirts, coffee mugs, baseball caps. Where did the saying come from?
0: Yes, I've been asked about this a few times. This came from very early on in March of 2020 when we had a lot we didn't know. There was so much concern and anxiety, and I was busy scribbling my notes for that day's press briefing, and it was the day when we were taking some restrictions and shutting down some things in our community because we were seeing the virus spread and we needed to take some actions. I had scribbled down these three words, and one of them was kind. I had thought a lot about other crises that I'd been in where kindness is so important. It's not just our Canadian being nice to each other. It's recognizing that we are kin. The origin of the word is that we have something in common. And being kind means recognizing that we don't always know everybody else's story. And they may be reacting in anger or they may be frozen from fear. And it's because of the uncertainty and that it's people react that way sometimes and being kind means taking a step back and being calm means being compassionate about that recognizing that people come from a different place and we need to show that compassion one of the ways we do that is being calm people tell me that I'm calm in a crisis and that helps them get through it and then it all came together in my mind is that is what will keep us safe is being compassionate with each
1: other showing that kindness March 2020, as you mentioned, we were chatting with Phil Dwyer of Qualica Beach, Order of Canada, who has won June Awards for his jazz efforts. And he wrote a tune, The Ballad of Bonnie Henry. And three days after it was written, it was actually uploaded to the web. And it had 10,000 downloads within a couple of weeks. How did that make you feel when you first heard the tune?
0: I think he's an amazing musician, so I was very honoured. And that was at a time when I was starting to realise that the things that I was saying were resonating with people and that they were recognising me, which was a little strange. In some ways, there's this Dr. Bonnie Henry and there's me, and I was a little bit like, oh dear. I was touched by how he expressed it in that song. I still have it. <laughs> I listen to it now and then. It was one of the first things that really led me to realize that I've always thought
1: that how we say things and words were important, but that my messages were helping people. Most everybody's trying to find a way to unplug through with the pandemic at some point, reading or just getting away to the beach or whatever it happened to be. Are you now able to relax and get away a little bit, spend a little time? And not think about the job?
0: Not yet, but it's in my future. It has been a long time. We have COVID, we've also had, of course, worsening of the toxic drug crises. And as we talked about last summer, there were just many things that we were dealing with across this province. So I have not yet had a time to take time off, and it's been long days. I do love to read. I'm a book person, so I've had very little time to do that either. But I am planning on getting away, hopefully, within the next few weeks, as long as everything stays as calm as it is right now. I think my challenge will be not thinking about the job and really trying to disconnect for a while. I know I'm one of many people who are just very tired, and we use the term burned out, especially in the healthcare sector. It's been hard on people across the board, and I think we all need to try and find some time where we can support each other to let our brains heal a little bit, let our hearts heal.
1: A couple of questions from our mailbag. This one from a teenager. I worry about what lies ahead for my generation regarding illnesses that we don't typically encounter, such as COVID-19 or monkeypox. And looking at the 100-year space between the Spanish flu and COVID-19, do you see this as a trend repeating and or occurring more frequently? And if that's the case, would you anticipate in the future that guidelines would be put forward in hopes of reducing transmissions? I empathize with teenagers. This has been a
0: tough two years. They've had three of their school years affected by this. They haven't been able to do all those crazy things that we did as teenagers, meeting with their groups. And for a time, thankfully, in BC, we for a very short time. We had schools closed. But in the sports and recreation and activities and travel, the experience of life has been different. But I will also say that these things happen a lot. And really, if we have recognized this from COVID, is that we are a global community and we are what we call a one health community. So what happens in animals spills over to humans and vice versa. And this is not the first pandemic that we've had since 1918, the Spanish influenza 100 years ago. Well, we had an influenza pandemic in 2009, which we were able to manage. We've had horrific Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa that spread to a number of other countries. Yes, as you're seeing right now, we have monkeypox, which has spread to countries where we don't usually see it. And that's what we call a neglected tropical disease. It's been around for a long time and in some countries in Africa, particularly Nigeria. So I think what this tells us is we're a global community and we need to pay attention to that as a global community. We've also seen avian influenza, which is causing impacts around the globe right now. So yes, we will be seeing these things more often, and we do need to work together as a global community to try and manage these monitoring for these illnesses in people, in animals, in food animals, in our plant systems, in our water systems, and that's something that we're spending quite a lot of time on. That's where I believe the World Health Organization has a very strong leadership role, so that we're not caught by surprise again. But I think it's inevitable. We are going to have other bacteria, viruses, other illnesses that spread around the globe. And so our job now, my job, is to make sure that we're as ready as we can be here in B.C., make sure that we have those systems in place to be able to detect things and then to respond.
1: Also from the mailbag, also from a teenager, what can be done about the lack of family physicians in British Columbia? I know that where I live on Vancouver Island, my family has been on a waiting list to receive a family doctor for more than three years.
0: I will say that this is not within my area of having a lot of influence, but I did work in family practice for some time before I did my specialty training. And I also obviously have spent a lot of time over the last two and a half years and even before that with colleagues across this province in specialists and family practitioners. And I think we have learned... Uh, a lot through this last two and a half years, how challenging it has been for primary care physicians across our health sector. Everything from how do you have people safely come into your office? How do we make sure we have PPE? These issues that existed before the pandemic have been made worse during this pandemic. But we've also made some big leaps ahead, things like virtual care, where that was really slow in getting started. It's expanded people's ability to reach people in more remote communities, to get access to care, but we have also know that you can't only see people remotely. We need to have that interaction in a a safe space as well. I believe we have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change the system And this is not unique to BC or to Canada. I think around the globe, we're seeing a stretched healthcare resource. There has always been resistance to changing models of remuneration. But I think this has exposed that we have to change. We have to find new ways to make family practice the practice of choice for people in medical schools and to support family practitioners to work and primary care practitioners to work in a team-based concept that's the best for them. It's the best for patients. But on the slightly pessimistic side, these are not easy solutions and they're not short-term solutions. So we need to do all kinds of things. I was at a meeting last week with a number of my colleagues who family physicians, specialists, leaders in the health care system, and we all recognize that we have a unique, I would say, once-in-a-generation opportunity to really change the system, to make sure that we are able to provide that care, that seamless care for everybody.
1: I'd like to thank Dr. Bonnie Henry, Provincial Health Officer for British Columbia, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google podcasts. Thank you for joining us on this encore presentation of Off the Page from our sister podcast, Today
0: in BC. We will return on a weekly basis with Season 2 in September. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, please email us at offthepage at comoxvalleyrecord.com.